I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Kate Nibbs. Welcome to Damage Control on the Channel 33 Network, a podcast where we unpack what upsets, excites, and divides us. We're talking about the 2020 presidential candidates. Specifically, we're talking about all the early defensiveness and consternation that surrounds the Democratic candidates, such as Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, we hate ourselves. <laughs> we hate ourselves. We hate ourselves yeah, really early yeah. in the year. But uh, but first, we need to discuss why 2019 has been a disaster for media companies like BuzzFeed, which just laid off a huge number of its staff. Look, look, BuzzFeed, I, I think it's great. We all think it's great that you want to help, but this isn't really what we need from you. Y'all are BuzzFeed. You do memes and lists. Everybody's got that aunt who has roaches, and every Thanksgiving, she's like, hey, y'all, what should I bring? And we're like, uh, ice? <laughs> you bring the ice because we don't want to be picking raisins out of the turkey. That's you, BuzzFeed. You bring the ice. You know, as Dr. King once said, don't go chasing waterfalls. Please stick to the rivers and the lakes that you are used to. So last week, over a thousand media company employees, many of them journalists, lost their jobs in a brutal round of layoffs at BuzzFeed, The Huffington Post, and The Gannett Newspapers. A lot of very talented people are currently looking for work. And we're trying to understand exactly what this means for the future of media. BuzzFeed, The Huffington Post, and and all these newspapers obviously still exist and are staffed with talented people. But this kind of enormous surge of unemployed journalists, I think, is very disturbing. Yes, and, especially because it's like a lot of them are web writers, as we, yeah. are we. And so all things like this always feel like close to home. Mm-hmm. And they always feel like they're happening like in our backyard. A lot of people who I really, really admired are now right. looking for work. And it's just disturbing. And I, I wrote about why these layoffs happened last week. And it has been very interesting. So I'm... <laughs> One of the things about writing for the internet is you get feedback um, on Twitter and emails and stuff. And a lot of people have been writing me and tweeting at me and telling me what they think caused this. And they have been sort of telling me that, you know, it's these journalists' own faults that they were like slinging fake news on the internet. Like it was only a matter of time. I think the public reaction to the Gannett layoffs and the mm-hmm. HuffPost layoffs was very different than the reaction to the BuzzFeed layoffs. The BuzzFeed layoffs were strangely, like, polarizing. Because <laughs> people—BuzzFeed, like, is such a—it's like the company that sort of represents new media, and people have really strong opinions about it. Like, that's why so many people were like, well, BuzzFeed doesn't even do journalism— like, who cares about these viral, this viral clickbait factory getting shut down or whatever? I got a lot of comments like that. Yeah. And I don't think they understand that there was a, a news arm that was producing tons of really good reporting. Scoops. Yeah. I think it's like the people who aren't sympathetic to BuzzFeed are what you've just described. Mm-hmm. But then there's the other half of it, which is BuzzFeed staff include just some of the most I want to say, like, online, visible, extremely online people who, like, these aren't just people who are uh, good reporters or who, like, make quizzes. But these are people who, 
largely because they work for BuzzFeed, which Mm -hmm. is like the most online place imaginable. These people have like very firmly established like presence Mm -hmm. in like digital life. And so there's something about those layoffs where when I was watching them play out online on Friday Mm -hmm. that just felt very public, like every single individual person laid off, it felt like. There were there were like thousands of people sort of acknowledging and, aff- and affirming and retweeting that person, and I think maybe that's the thing that culturally feels different from like Gannett, yeah, right, where you you're more so thinking of like less online l- like older yeah. reporters and in I, like different in smaller media markets than New York. That's what I was gonna say. Like the Gannett, like a ton of people off, but. Since it was sort of spread out ac- across a bunch of papers, and as you said, they like a lot of the people weren't quite as online and and skewed older, like it didn't have the same impact. And Huffington Post, I think they only laid off around fifteen people, which is terrible. But like BuzzFeed, this was like such a huge bloodletting, and also a lot of the people who got fired from BuzzFeed were like super longtime employees who yeah. were who were very very well known and respected both within the company and, like, on the internet. So it was very shocking. Right. It feels like this, these things come in waves and waves in media. Because, like, you and I are old enough to remember when Huffington Post was BuzzFeed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And the Huffington Post also went through, Literally like, was literally. BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed was a s- spinoff project of the Huffington Post. Right. But th- there was that moment when, like, Huffington Post was not only as sort of like new and shiny as BuzzFeed would ultimately be, Mm -hmm. but also it was just as polarizing and people were either like obsessively reading the Huffington Post or they were like, what is this? Yeah, they were like, why is Alec Alec Baldwin blogging? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, So I don't know. There's there's an Ouroboros devouring everything in its wake here. (laughs) There is a crisis of trust in the media, but the layoffs really have nothing to do with it. There isn't one single cause. There are a few major causes, though, that I wanted to talk to you about because looking at them sort of gives us a picture of what's happening in the country as a whole, like not just with the media, because it sort of it connects to a lot of stuff. So I'll just I'll just dive right into chatting about what happened. So with Gannett. That's a legacy. That's like a chain of legacy newspapers. Right. Um, so they started out like the old-fashioned kind of newspapers where like you get it and you uh, open quarter, it and you read see? it. Yeah, yeah there's the newsies. <laughs> the newsies, yeah. yeah. So the reason they had layoffs is quite different from like the reason BuzzFeed and, and the HuffPo had layoffs. And I just wanted to explain that briefly because I want to make sure that we don't sort of glide over the fact that a lot of these legacy newspaper people lost their jobs because they're very talented. Um, So what happened there was uh, legacy newspapers have been in trouble for decades, including when, like, things seemed like they were good in the 80s and 90s. A lot of them were, like, family-run papers and consolidated into big chains like Gannett and then became publicly traded, which is fine, but it meant that they were beholden to shareholders who wanted to maximize profits which, like, journalism is not super, (laughs) the super ideal industry to get into if you want to maximize profits. So they also took on a lot of debt when they were profitable because they thought they would always be profitable. When the Internet happened, they they didn't really innovate quickly enough. They lost subscribers who didn't want to pay for the news anymore or going 
to get their news from new media companies. When they lost subscribers, they cut staff. That meant they didn't cover as much. They lost more subscribers. It, it just became this vicious cycle. So now a lot of like hedge funds are basically coming in and swooping up financially vulnerable newspaper chains and newspapers, and Ghana is trying to sell to a hedge fund. So so their cuts sort of speak to the fact that they're like going for austerity measures because they want to get bought. So that's what's happening there. And I, I want to show mm. something about that real quick, though, because mm-hmm. like we're going to talk about web media later. And like web media, to me, it makes sense that like web media is unstable because it's a new thing. Mm-hmm. And like people are still trying to figure out like what the ideal way to like <clears throat> make a BuzzFeed makes sense as a business in the first place is. Mm-hmm. Newspapers, I'm kind of astounded, have survived as long as they have because it feels like, like you said, a lot of decades have been sort of dedicated to the idea that, like, no one knows how to make newspapers make long-term mm-hmm. <laughs> financial sense. Because wasn't it true 10 years ago that it, we were talking about, like, the death of newspapers and yeah. the death of magazines? They've been, like, slowly just languishing. Oh, right. and I, I forgot to say another factor when I was talking about how the internet had made them lose subscribers. It also, like, really screwed up their, their advertising revenue because people, you like, online classified sort of killed paid print classified. So that was also a factor, too. And then when it comes to BuzzFeed, on, uh, advertisements play a big role because BuzzFeed, like most new media companies, has been trying to earn money through ads. And for it and basically every other company that puts content on the Internet, that's been getting harder and harder to do because of like the rise of Facebook and Google as distributors. Someone on Twitter said that that they were like the paper boys and that the fa- so Facebook and Google currently get 85% of all ad money. So someone said it was like giving the paper boys all the money. Right. Um, which I thought was very smart. Right. And depressing. <laughs> um, it's hideous cuz it's like the idea of personifying Google as like a cute little paper boy. I don't know. I don't know if that's some exactly. <laughs> snapping its suspenders. Right. Right. So yeah, advertisements sort of are an important part of why BuzzFeed is currently buzzing less. Right. But also, there's a lot of different factors. Like, uh, BuzzFeed's head of quizzes, who was recently laid off, blogged about how, I think it was like the second most popular quiz maker in all of BuzzFeed. Right. It was just like traffic. a teenager doing it for fun. Right. Who was unpaid. She just loved quizzes, right. which, fair enough. Who I love a good quiz. I love a good quiz. And so he was sort of saying it seemed like BuzzFeed realized, like, why would they have to pay a living wage to a staffer in like LA or New York and health insurance and stuff when they could get a teen in Michigan to give them content for free. Right. Give them like highly trafficking content. Yeah. For uh, or for swag. I think they were being paid in swag, if I recall. That's they were being so sent dark. like merch, merchandise <laughs> as so like compensation, quote unquote. I've seen a lot of people sort of also blaming this on the fact that consumers don't want to pay for news, but that's not true. People are paying for news. Some newspapers, like in magazine New Yorker, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, like they've gotten what's called the Trump bump, where like they're they're they have like more subscribers than ever. They're flourishing, and I think it would be ideal if people could subscribe to some local news sites and some 
you know, entertainment or culture or sports or whatever, the sites that really pique their interest that aren't like the big three that don't need their help. But, you know, I feel like it's putting the pressure on people to just subscribe more and more. I don't, I just don't think that's super realistic. Right. There needs to be changes in the way that, that the digital advertising happens, but like, I don't know how the, those changes will occur. Some people have been suggesting that this is just another example of a reason why Facebook and Google need to be regulated and broken up. I totally agree, but like I just don't see that happening anytime right. soon. So this is sort of one of those things that demonstrates what happens when industries that aren't built like startups, expectations are put on them to grow and be as profitable as, and scalable as like uni- Silicon Valley unicorns. Right. So my question comes there, Mm -hmm. which is, and listen, I am not smart CEO, businessman, genius, but I don't totally get the profitability strategy with BuzzFeed. I Mm -hmm. don't get how you take BuzzFeed, which is this sort of wonderkind, like generation-defining website Mm -hmm. that is defined by all of these almost like irreconcilable things that it it sort of cohered into a brand Mm -hmm. from like reporting on the Mueller investigation to like producing quizzes Mm -hmm. (laughs) about like sex in the city characters. And you have spoken like like a true Samantha. Right. But it's like, (laughs) it's like you have this diverse, it's like this ship and I don't get the idea of like, well, Buzzfeed was growing. uh, It's revenue. It's annual revenue is growing. But it's not profitable enough. So we're going to lay off all of these mm-hmm. people. It wasn't profitable at all. It was Okay, right. Yeah. Okay. That's, right, I think right, that's right. getting it's lost. Reven- it's re- like okay, it, sure, sure. It's revenue right. was the it's highest. Revenue is the highest. It's taking a ton of money, but it, it's stuff. It losing too- less money. Yeah. Is that, okay. Losing less money. <laughs> As a relatively young, again, media company, mm-hmm. we need to lay all of these people off for trying to achieve profitability. The BuzzFeed that's left, like, is that a thing you? I, I don't. I don't know how one imagines the emaciated BuzzFeed becoming mm-hmm. a profitable thing. So apparently, they're in talks to merge with this Group Nine, which is owned by Ken Lair. Lair, I yeah, I think that's how you say his name. So he was, he's like a VC guy who founded Huffington Post with Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed, and Ariana Huffington. Mm-hmm. His son owns, like, Thrillist, and, th- and, like, I don't know which—the Lehrer family owns the Dodo, that animal. Yeah. So they have this media organization called Group 9, and so ne- reports are coming out that BuzzFeed might be merging with Group 9. I guess that's going to make them perhaps more appealing to, like, an even larger— uh, I don't really like know. Yeah, something. I don't really <laughs> yeah. know what their right. end game is. Right. Whether they're because I like two years ago or something, we were all talking about when BuzzFeed was gonna hold a public offering. That seems like completely off the table now. Yeah. Jonah Peretti gave this interview to the New York Times last year, where he was talking about how like media companies should potentially form like a super alliance so that they could stand up to Facebook and Google and everyone was like that's really out of left field but okay right. now I mean maybe this is part of his strategy that 
the only way he can sort of wrest some control back over like the new media industry from these tech companies is to like to consolidate. I don't know. Right. There's like a startling amount of uncertainty. I know. And and it's almost like to the point of whimsicality. Like even in even in talking about the idea of these consolidations, Mm -hmm. it sounds like some Avengers bullshit where it's like you're going to gang up to negotiate like better ad rates with Facebook. Like what? I don't know. know. And it, it, it worries me because I feel like one of the big things that got legacy newspapers totally fucked is the fact that they all consolidated and a lot of them went public and then they were beholden to right. shareholders. Right. And like they wouldn't have made as much money in their flush times had they remained like independent family owned, but then they wouldn't have had to be as a ruth like it just I'm very wary of the the idea that the way forward for media companies is to consolidate. Or Jeff, you know, Bezos to buy Bezos. I guess like the post is like such a weird example yeah. of like it's sort of the intersection of what you were saying before of like a place that does have like strong subscription rates mm-hmm. in the Trump moment, mm-hmm. but that also feels like a bit safer than like a BuzzFeed, obviously. Um yeah, I don't know. Like it's 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 hard to know where the money is going. It's it's hard to know like where the money is going and like what the trends even are ideally for yeah. web media. But yeah, it's a really complicated scenario. Very wary of consolidation. Unfortunately, possibly like my greatest hope at, at the moment is that when Jeff Bezos gets divorced, Mackenzie Bezos oh. <laughs> will emerge as like the next Lauren Powell Jobs and, you know, swoop in and save at least a few companies. A few companies. All right. Well, if Mackenzie Bezos is listening, girl, being a media mogul is the best revenge. Mm. Please mm. help. Help. <laughs> Distress SOS. We're here with our guest, Senator Kamala Harris of California. Uh, Senator, uh, let me ask you this. Many people who put out books... <laughs> two years before a presidential election, uh, do so to introduce themselves uh, in a broad way to the American people. Um, Are you going to run for president? I might. You might. Kate, I'm, like, super sorry to report to you that there has already been a CNN town hall about the 2020 presidential election. We're not just talking about, like, oh, a candidate announced or, oh, somebody's forming an exploratory committee to form another expl- – you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's There's an actual CNN town hall. It was last week. Kamala Harris was the subject of the town hall. She was just doing the whole – and this was in Iowa – was this after she announced that she was running? Yeah, yeah. Okay. She's, she's got a firm rollout. She did the, she goes on uh, Good Morning America, announces mm-hmm. she's running for president. Then the weekend after that, uh, she gives a speech in California where she does her formal, like, it's more like a rally. And mm-hmm. then she's doing the CNN town hall, right? Pretty, pretty solid, you know, conventional rollout. And Kamala Harris does this town hall and there, she gets a question about, the future, uh, like, post-Obamacare healthcare in the United States. Mm-hmm. And in her answer, <laughs> she's really leaning into the thing that all the Democrats are leaning into, which is, like, we're all socialists now, Medicare for all, you know. Mm-hmm. We're all sort of 
we're all going to the left in this primary. And she says something. She says basically like, let's abolish private insurance. <laughs> let's move on from that. Uh, which is like an interesting, like provocative idea that seems like she's trying to sort of jump into the like post Bernie, post Elizabeth Warren mainstream. She's trying to be in the mix with the, the hot new young left. Yeah. But then she gets like some backlash to saying this in a CNN town hall. And she like today, as we're recording this, is like walking it back and trying to walk back to a more centrist position about like the future of healthcare in America. Mm-hmm. And I find this exhausting already. Like I find that like th- this sort of like hot, cold shift that yeah. happened in the course of just a couple of days about a single issue in a town hall that's like eight months way too early to be happening. It sort of encapsulates why I think people are going to feel really exhausted talking about the Democratic presidential candidates because it just seems like it seems like there's a lot of them. There are so many. And it seems like there there's more coming too. Like we're not even Well, okay, it. let's say how many yeah. there are. There's there 90. 90 per another night. But <laughs> there there is enough for me to say that there are dozens of yeah, them. Yeah, there's dozens. And it's it's hard when we say that there are Democratic presidential candidates, like it's tough because you have people who have declared formally. Yeah. Kamala Harris is the like she's the most declared because she specifically she did an interview, then she did an actual campaign rally speech. Now she's doing a town hall. Then below that, you have someone like Elizabeth Warren, who technically announced before Kamala Harris. Yeah. But the problem with Elizabeth Warren is that what she really announced is that she's forming an exploratory committee, which oh. means that like you still have the part where she has to then come back and say, "Here's my formal announcement video," or and "Here's my like." First I didn't speech. realize that. That's the thing. Yeah. They're getting you with the technicalities yeah. in small print. So technically. Kamala Harris is further along than Elizabeth Warren. Okay. But then, like, Elizabeth Warren is further along than someone like Cory Booker, who hasn't even announced yet, but is clearly going to run. He's likely. He's likely. And then you got Joe Biden being like, I don't know if I'm going to run. I don't know. Is Bernie going to run? Bernie might run. He he was that's, in South that's Carolina. That's exhausting to me. Why? Is, well, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. So, like, on the one hand, at face value, mm-hmm. it's a lot. It's a lot of people doing a lot of things, using way too many napkins. But on another level, I want to think that this could be healthy. I want to think that a bunch of Democrats arguing for like a year mm-hmm. about the things that matter, like healthcare in America. I want to think that this could be healthy. Okay, I think it could be healthy in the same way that like a kale smoothie is healthy. Like I'm going to fucking hate it, but it could be healthy. I don't want it. <laughs> I'll have to be forced it. <laughs> but maybe, yes, maybe it will be good. What do you think about the campaigns so far? <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about this because I don't really know what I think right now. I'm sort of conflicted. I obviously want Trump to lose. I'm definitely going to support whoever gets the Democratic candidacy. I will throw all of my support behind them. Not no matter what, like there's probably some lines, but at this point, it seems like any of these people who have declared would be vastly better than Trump. Like I, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind. So that's one of my including thoughts. Tulsi Gabbard, by the way. 
I just what is I would have clarified. Maybe okay. you won't agree with this. I would even vote. Totally I would no same same. I think she is she is a Hawaiian weirdo, yeah, but I would yeah, vote for her. Yeah. Part of me is like all I really care about is Trump losing. That's a pretty big part of me. Yeah. But then. <laughs> That's not true. I want the best candidate to emerge from this primary. I want a candidate that ideally I want a candidate that aligns with my values. I'm not really expecting that just because I'm I'm pretty left wing and like uh probably Bernie is the closest candidate like from a platform stance for me, but I actually don't want him to run because I think he's way too divisive. And I don't think he's going to win. And Wait, I think you didn't lead sh- with the thing that you've said before on earlier what? podcast, what? which is that people are too old. Well, he is too old, too. But, <laughs> like, that's, that's actually— Headline idea of Kate Nibbs. No, but, control. like, if he had a viable chance in my mind, I would put my ageism aside and support him. It's just that I don't think he really has a chance. I think he should just be throwing his, his support behind someone with a better chance. That's what I think. I know that— People might disagree with me for sure, but that's what I that's what I think. And so one of the things sort of since like Kamala Harris announced, I've noticed that people are pretty fired up about her one way or the other. There's been a lot of talk about where, you know, people have been criticizing her. I think that there's a lot of legitimate reasons to criticize her background. If you're a progressive, she doesn't have a particularly progressive background at all so uh but then other people are sort of saying why are you like scrutinizing this female poc candidate like give her a break basically yeah there's a lot going on it's funny because i remember the 2008 presidential election Mm -hmm. and that was man like i'm remembering who ran and it was obviously obama clinton edwards Edwards, Bill Richardson, like that was one of the few, it's like, okay, 1988 Democratic primary is like Jesse Jackson versus Michael Dukakis. And like, that's a big moment in terms of like black participation in the primary process. But 2008 is like the first primary for like either party that I think of as like aspirationally diverse. But coincidentally, like a lot of the conversations during the 2008 primary were fucked (laughs) They were bad. They were like, I remember the early stuff that no one talks about anymore. That Think about it. This is like Obama running versus Clinton. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think a lot of the early conversations about Obama are also the early conversations about Kamala Harris, where it's like you have half of the people in the room being like, okay, this is the, the candidate for the black people, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Barack Obama, because that's just how black people work, because they just vote for the black guy. But then the other half of commentary, it was like, is this guy black enough? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he's kind of a dweeb. He's a law professor. And I just remember these super vapid, problematic conversations that never really knew how to engage with Barack Obama being a black candidate mm-hmm. and what that meant for his appeal to black people and other people. And the same with Hillary Clinton being a powerful woman and media never really knowing how to talk about that without being, like, vaguely offensive or condescending about it. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the diversity of the 2020 field for the Democrats, it feels like the 2008 election on crack cocaine. (laughs) It just feels like we're two weeks into it. And I've seen articles where people are just sort of like, 
they're essentializing Kamala Harris to the point of both she's not necessarily black enough, but also like she's the black lady and I don't care if she's secretly a Republican. Like I just really need a black woman to be the person to beat Trump. And it's just like the most reductive, essentializing, infuriating framing for a lot of these candidacies. Like people are theorizing about who is going to fuck with Kamala Harris or not based entirely on the fact that she's she's the black lady. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's happening with a lot of these candidates already. I think, like, Kirsten Gillibrand is the white mom lady. <laughs> and, like, that's all really the media has to work with in terms of, like, characterizing her. Yeah. And that feels condescending Same with me. Same with Klobuchar, but she is also a prosecutor, so. Yeah. I think that, like, stan culture has infiltrated politics in a really destructive way. And it's sort of making these conversations worse. So, like, this columnist for Teen Vogue was saying, I don't give a shit if Kamala Harris is a prosecutor. Like, she should, she's going to prosecute Trump all the way to prison or something like that. (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. That's good. That person should be a speechwriter. Yeah. And I was like, this is what it looks like when you sort of treat your politicians like superheroes instead of actually looking at what their policies will be. Right. She's going to prosecute his ass all the way. (laughs) To where? Did she say Guantanamo? I don't remember. Oh, no. I don't know. But that was the gist. And, like, I wonder if we're going to have an opportunity to have a reasonable conversation about the candidates or it's just going to go straight to mayhem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Kamala Harris has it worse than the rest because she is both black and a woman. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you know, Gillibrand is a white lady, Booker's a black dude. Like, I almost feel like the 2020 election is going to veer into being a legit parody of what conservatives mean when they say identity politics and scare quotes. Yeah. Right? And I think the Democratic Party could or at least ideally should do better than that. But I don't know. I'm not confident. (laughs) Or if not the Democratic Party even, if not the candidates themselves, just like the media that have to cover them Mm -hmm. and the activists who have to interact with these campaigns. But I really do think that, like, that's not going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, I don't don't think so either. Because I want to be able to, like, have critical conversations about Kamala Harris without that defensiveness of— Why are you tearing down— yeah. The, the black woman candidate. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I've been sort of mulling it over because I wrote something in 2016 that ended up involving Kamala Harris when she was the the attorney in Cali. Right, because she's only been a senator for two years. Yeah. She also stressed that. She was um, recently an attorney general. So that's when she sort of, I started looking into her. And what was the piece that you were writing? It was about Backpage.com. Um, so she was really instrumental in arresting the founders. She charged them with pimping. And she is sort of, uh, she, a lot of people in like the sex industries are very critical of her because a lot of the things that she did as attorney general and as a prosecutor have been very hostile to sex workers. So I've I've always thought of her as, like, really a centrist. I don't think she's progressive at all. I was shocked when she said, uh, made those comments about 
healthcare because I didn't expect that coming from her because I've always really seen her as like a, a Democrat, like an establishment Democrat. Right, right, yeah. right. And anyways, I don't really share a lot of her politics, but if she's going to be the candidate, I'm hesitant to like enter into a conversation being too critical of her. I don't, and I don't know if that's just because I'm like really, really scared of Trump winning to the point where I'm pulling back too much. It's just a weird position to be in. I think it's twofold. I think it's like people who are afraid of Trump winning because mm-hmm. Trump is the Armageddon for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think the other part of it though is that 2016 was so about that. It was so about having these really bruising, like, fuck Bernie, fuck Hillary. Like, that. it was so that. It was so all about, like, the Democrats eating each other alive. Yeah. That I think that definitely is informing why a lot of people have entered this with the sense of, like, I don't care if this person is, yeah. like, Woodrow Wilson conservative. Like, I just want to win. Yeah. I don't want to relive 2016 where the Democratic Party had an existential crisis on stage for two years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I get that, but I don't know. I think my basic instinct is that I feel like this cuts against some conventional wisdom, but I think these things are good. I, I think, I don't know. I think competitive primaries are good. I think they often look ugly, but it's like, I also don't think that the ugliness necessarily has anything to do with like whether the nominee that comes out of that process is going to win or not. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what looked really ugly was the 2016 Republican presidential primary. And the Republicans won. Yeah. Oh, my (laughs) God. You know what looked really ugly? The 2008 Democratic presidential primary. And then the Democrats won. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily prohibitively bad for there to be a really competitive primary where people's heads are maybe a little bit too hot. But I at least want to think that if we're going to be hot-headed about stuff, it's going to be about public policy and about, like, the new direction of the Democratic Party and not about, (laughs) not about, like, these weird racial and, like, gender caricatures of these Mm action-figured, like, politicians who are way too old, by the way, to be treating (laughs) like they're fucking Pokemon. (laughs) And throwing them at each other over trivial shit. You've just, like, really cheered me up. I feel feel a lot better about politics. You feel better about about, American politics. Not about media. But, yeah, that that is a—I think I would like to believe that. You've made a compelling argument. And, honestly, even if you're completely wrong, this is still probably the most psychologically healthy uh, thought process to have about it. So when are you announcing your candidacy? Well, you know, I, I've been talking with family in mm-hmm. recent days, and, you know, I think I'm going to form a fundraising committee. You feel free to contribute. That'll influence my decision, et cetera, et cetera. No, whatever. Forget running. Like, our aspiration is damage control mm-hmm. in 2019, 2020 should be to host a presidential debate. That's our, boom, that's a goal. That's achievable. Kamala Harris, come on, damage control. Yeah, but also, like, CNN, uh, you know, ringer partnership. <laughs> <laughs> Just... Putting it out into the universe, seeing what comes back. All right, so we might be hosting a presidential debate this year, but in the meantime, we're hosting Damage Control. I'm Justin Charity. I'm Kate Nibbs. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. (laughs) 